In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, of course, we have been thinking together these few weeks about these beautiful and comforting, also sometimes challenging words uh, from probably the best-known chapter in all the Bible, the 23rd Psalm, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. Incidentally, there are lovely bookmarks which are available for you to take home, uh, scattered all over the church, downstairs on tables, uh, uh, so please do take those. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, the one who leads me, the one who restores my soul. So the first week we were talking about um, the power of wanting in our culture. Um, I shall not want doesn't mean that I shall never, um, that I shall get everything that my heart desires, nor does it mean that all of my desires and wanting will be just turned off, but rather the hope that the shepherd will help me to want the right things. God, fix my wanter. Uh, and then, of course, last week on All Saints Sunday, we talked about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Not around, not just into, but through. Because the valley of the shadow is a temporary lodging and not a permanent home. But we acknowledge that that is easier said than done because the valley of the shadow is a very seductive place. Uh, impossible to enjoy and yet at the same time often hard to leave. Um, so those four key words, thou art with me. And we also acknowledge that sometimes you and I are that divine presence to one another. Well, it would be tempting to stop at every verse along the way, but of course there is not time for that. So today we slide down to the fifth verse in the psalm, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. So two ideas combined in one sentence as though the psalmist is saying to us that these two are somehow related. So the image of one's cup filled to overflowing, it, it seems to me, is all about a sense of gratitude. It is where religion or spirituality, if you would like, begins in any person's heart. The awareness that life has given you a wonderful gift is the fundamental religious emotion. Gratitude, which of course is more than just saying thanks when somebody holds the door for you or when somebody passes you something at the uh, dinner table. It's more than um, what your mom shouts to you as you're the last thing before you run out to your friend's house. Don't forget to say, gratitude is actually a way of looking at the world. Doesn't necessarily change the facts of your life, but it does have the power to make your life more enjoyable. The rabbi tells me that in the traditional Jewish liturgy, the first three minutes of the morning service are there to remind the worshiper to be grateful, that he is alive, that she has food to eat and clothes to wear, 
that he has things to do during the day that will remind him of his humanity, that she has friends to share the day with. I read about this guy who has developed a habit of writing thank you in the lower left corner of every check that he writes. So he pays his bills to the electric company or the phone company. He writes thank you to express his gratitude to those companies for making those services available to him uh, at the push of a button. I noticed he didn't mention his cable company. I don't know why. <laughs> Even when he pays his taxes, he writes thank you as a way of reminding himself. He doesn't think that the IRS would actually notice, but as a way of reminding himself that our, his taxes are the price that he willingly pays for living in this country with all of its benefits. The remarkable thing about gratitude, it seems to me, is that, like forgiveness, I suppose, it is actually a favor that we do ourselves more than it is something that we do for the recipient of the thanks. So God would have us develop an attitude of gratitude for all of these blessings in our lives, really not because God needs the thanks but because when we acknowledge those blessings, we actually come to feel differently about the world that we are living in, and that can actually um, make us happier. You know that here in Michigan, we are always talking about the weather. Uh, you know, if you don't like it today, does it, tomorrow it will change. I came to realize a couple of years ago that everyone does not do this around the country. Kathy and I were out in Los Angeles for a week, and uh, there everyone talks about traffic. Every conversation uh, is about how did you get here, what route, and how long did it take. Um, however, you have lived here long enough to know that crabby people will always find reasons to be crabby about the weather. Um, it is either too hot or it is too cold. Um, it is uh, too rainy to go outside, or boy, we haven't had any rain. It's too dry for the lawn. And if one day is perfect, have you noticed on the Weather Channel that it's going to be lousy this coming weekend? <laughs> they complain, of course, not because of what the day is like, but because of what they are like. By contrast, grateful people actually say things like, April showers bring May flowers. One person sees the rain as a blessing. Another sees it as a nuisance. Because their hearts tell their eyes how to interpret what they see. And my hunch is that there is a little bit of both of these in every one of us. The psychologist Abraham Maslow used to say that one of the characteristics of the fully mature adult is the ability to appreciate again and again, freshly and naively, the basic goods of life with a sense of pleasure and wonder and even ecstasy, while others come to see these and take them for granted. The writer G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, Children are delighted when Santa puts 
toys and sweets in their stockings. Shall I not be grateful when he puts in my stockings the gift of two healthy legs? So, reading between the lines, it is not difficult to realize that the author of the 23rd Psalm did not always have an easy life. It was not painless or problem-free. The Lord prepares a table before him, but you notice it's not his friends that gather, it is his enemies. He has clearly had the feeling of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. So he can pause and praise God for all that God has done for him, not because his life is so easy, but precisely because his life has sometimes been difficult, and he recognizes now that it is God who has brought him through those hard times. Harold Kushner, who you remember from when bad things happen to good people, writes this. He says, Every night I prepare for bed and I put drops in my eyes to fend off the threat of glaucoma that would rob me of my sight and take from me the pleasure of reading. Each morning at breakfast I take a pill to control my blood pressure. And each evening I take another to lower my cholesterol level. But instead of lamenting the ailments that come with growing older, instead of wishing I were as young and fit as I once was, I take my medicine with a prayer of thanks, that modern, modern science has found ways to keep up with all those ailments. I think of all my ancestors who didn't live long enough to develop the complications of old age and who didn't have pills to take when they did. I read an interview um, about, by this man who um, had uh, crash-landed his little plane on a small airstrip in California. Fortunately, he was able to evacuate the plane before it went up in smoke. And the reporter asked him what was going through his mind as the plane got closer and closer to the ground. His answer, I realized I hadn't thanked enough people in my life. So the spiritual life begins with gratitude. Life is a gift. My cup runneth over. And that becomes then the springboard to the second part of the spiritual life, which is like unto it. Life is not only a gift, but life is for the giving. Which brings us back to the first part of our verse this morning. Thou anointest my head with oil. Now, surely having oil poured on your head meant something difficult, di different to an ancient Israelite than it means to us today. For most moderns, it probably conjures up nothing more than a treatment in a beauty salon. Not that there's anything wrong with that, incidentally. Um, however, in those days, it was a great honor and it was an important gesture. Um, the last person that I can call to mind who had oil poured on her head was Queen Elizabeth, and that was like 65 years ago. And that ceremony, part of her investiture as a queen, was a deliberate echo of the biblical ritual 
of anointing kings, marking them as special and intended for greatness. So to anoint someone means to say to that that, that person is special. Birthdays, special, unique. This person is designated for greatness, which is something, if we are honest, that even the most humble of us crave. That's why some people go to extremes to do things that get them into the Guinness Book of Records. That's why we are so happy when the papers mention our name favorably. Um, that's why um, the very successful business person um, who could probably buy anything that she wants is overjoyed when her church or the organization she volunteers in gives her this $25 plaque for woman or volunteer of the year because it says, I am not just an anonymous person in the crowd. I am somebody special here. There is a passage in the Jewish Talmud that reads, the royal mint stamps out thousands of coins, each one bearing the likeness of the emperor, and each one is identical. But God fashions millions of people, each one in his own image, and not two are alike. Every one of them is unique. So when the psalmist writes, thou anointest my head with oil, he is saying, God, you have not only given me the gifts of food and safety, you have given me the gift of being special. And I accept the responsibility that comes with that gift. If every one of us, like the author of the 23rd Psalm, is anointed by God, if every one of us is in some way special in God's eyes, that means that every one of us has a responsibility to make the world a little bit more like the world that God would like it to be. In fact, it suggests God is counting on us to do this. And here, it seems to me, is one of the ways that the church, and I'm going to be very specific and say this church is such a gift, because it gives each one of us very tangible ways to live out our anointing. So we bring these bags today full of groceries that will make a tangible difference in the lives of local people. My little bag by itself, not such a big deal. All of these bags together, however, are a real statement. I think of Mother Teresa's words, few of us can do great things, all of us can do small things with great love. So here, working together next Sunday, 10,000 meals will get made for children that we will never meet. Or a few weeks ago at the masquerade dinner, we come together to make an opportunity available for our senior highs to go on a mission trip. Do you know how many college applications include some mention of those trips? 
I can still remember my daughter Mariah saying that one of the reasons she wanted to go to medical school was that she wanted to develop some tangible skills so that she could take them back to the kind of communities where we had done mission. Where did she get that idea? Here, in a couple of weeks, we have the opportunity to provide gifts for children for Christmas downriver. And in the process, we also have the tangible way of teaching our own children and grandchildren that Christmas is more than looking for their own presence under the Christmas tree. In the same way, through our Christmas offering, whose birthday is it anyway, this year going to Rwandan refugees through a program called Humanitas. You'll hear about that in a couple of weeks. But we also have a way to make a tangible difference in those lives. Here, children and grandchildren who you saw on the screen are recognized as special. And it has nothing to do with whether, with whether they are the best soccer player on the pitch or whether they pitch on the diamond. It has nothing to do with whether they are an honor student, whatever your bumper sticker may say, or whether they are the most gifted singer in the choir. It is simply because they are a child of God and they are special in this family. Here, individuals come together and you make music that literally every week restores people's souls and calms their fears and sends them out with courage into the week. Here, individuals get the chance in the spring to go and help renovate a home for somebody in our local community. As your pastor, I have the unique vantage point to watch so many of you live out your anointing in and through these ministries. Is it the only place that you can do that? No. Many of you also do this in your profession, in your families, in other ways that you volunteer in the community. But it is, is it a very important part of your anointing? Yes, it is. Harvey Cox is a devout Christian. He's now in his, I would say, late 80s. He used to teach at Harvard Divinity School. And he happens to be married to a Jewish woman. In his wonderful little book, Common Prayers, he describes going through the cycle of the Jewish year and experiencing all of the Jewish holidays through the eyes of a Christian who is also a member of a committed Jewish family. When he comes to the Seder, the ritual meal that most of your Jewish friends celebrate in a home, celebrates the beginning of Passover, Harvey talks about the moment in the meal where somebody literally gets up from the table and goes and opens the door to welcome the prophet Elijah. I bet you were wondering when we would get to Elijah. <laughs> and Elijah, you know, has a special place in Jewish folklore. In the passage that Chris read, read to us, he is taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot, hence swing low. Um, so the tradition is that Elijah never really died. He is sort of a culture broker between heaven and earth, and so is always in a position to commute between the two realms and to alert human beings as to what God has in store for us. 
And so the tradition is that Elijah will come and announce the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. You remember that some people in Jesus' day thought that he might be Elijah. You remember that some people stood around the cross as he was quoting the 22nd Psalm, Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they thought maybe he was actually calling for Elijah. Anyway, at the Passover meal, a seat is left open for Elijah. And someone goes to the door. Maybe this is the year. And Harvey, attending this Seder as a Christian, and well aware of the different interpretations between Christians and Jews as to whether the Messiah has come or is going to come, he sees the search for Elijah from a fresh perspective. When the door is opened every year and Elijah is not there, he suggests that we finally realize Elijah is not coming. We have to be Elijah. We have to act together to clean up the mess that we have made of God's world. No one else is going to magically appear to do it for us. So when the author of the 23rd Psalm says to God, you have anointed my head with oil, he is saying, God, you have given me the privilege of feeling special. In this vast throng of billions of people, you recognize me. But his words also contain the implication that that privilege carries with it a real responsibility to carry out the tasks which God has assigned to you and to us. So when we volunteer with a team at Crossroads, or when we create a safe place for homeless people through SOS, or when we create a program like World so that our kids and grandkids can even know who Elijah is, we are paving the way for the anointed one. We open the door. When we don't find Elijah standing there, instead of saying, well, maybe next year, instead we learn to say, if Elijah is not there, let me be Elijah. You have anointed my head with oil. How can I not respond? Amen.